If you would, please take your Bibles, a copy of God's Word, and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Yes, Genesis this morning, not Isaiah, if you've been with us for the past few weeks. And if you're brand new, still turn to Genesis. Uh, Genesis 3, we're going to read the entire chapter. As Kurt said a little bit ago in the announcements, we, um, we have... Uh, Six passages that we've mapped out to answer the question, why the God-man or why did God become man? So without further ado, let's look, look to the reading of God's word. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil." So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit. Of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. 
Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and what you do is good. Be good to us now. Let us hear your word. Give us ears to hear all that you have to say to us. Give us hearts that are ready to respond. We pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. There's more I could say about Genesis 3 because there's more I could say about all of Scripture. Believe it or not, I leave a lot on the cutting room floor every week. Why say that? Because whether you're a founding member, a lifelong Christian, or brand new to the church, our church, if you think things ever seem simplistic, it's often because there's more we could say about something. The bare minimum I want to say today is why Genesis 3.15 helps us understand Christmas. Pastor Kurt and I mapped out six passages between now and December 26 to answer that question, why the God-man, or why did God become man? Again, a title from Anselm of Canterbury, his book. Genesis 3 says, God became man to crush the serpent's head, to reverse the curse. Now, you may have already known that, because many sing this song, we'll sing it after the sermon, every Christmas. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. You see, Christmas carols, some of the best hymns we have as Christians, some of the best theology, some of the best Christology, Christ Christology. If you want to know your God and Christ, then sing Christmas carols, even on November 28th, even on July 1st. The incarnation is worth celebrating year-round, and even if you're Ebenezer Scrooge for 11 months of the year. We can all agree that the incarnation, God becoming man, the word becoming flesh, it should be celebrated regularly. We'll do that this morning by asking and answering three questions. Why, what, how? Why is man cursed? What does the curse mean? How will the curse be reversed. Those are our three points. Let's start with every child's favorite question. Why? Why is man cursed? That's our first point. Verses one through seven. The fall of mankind, it's complex. There may be one magical moment, unmagical in a way, when Eve finally bit the fruit, but there were many factors that led up to it. The first factor is a snake who talks. He is more crafty cunning, deceptive than the other animals because, well, Satan seems to inhabit him. So, as Derek Kidner says, the tempter begins with suggestion rather than argument. You see this in verse 1, the end of verse 1. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Derek Kidner, you'll hear his name a lot. Everything he writes is quotable in my experience. But, he says that Satan is smuggling in the assumption 
that God's word is subject to our judgment. Now Eve overcorrects his insinuation in verse 3. And then Satan moves to outright denial of God's word, a bald-faced lie. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice the suggestion here that God is holding out on you. If God was really good, then he would let you eat from that other tree. He implies that sinning is in their best interest. You see, before sin, Satan's lie is always, you can get away with it. After sin, the lie changes to, you'll never get away with it. We are cursed because Satan is a tempter who wants us to fall. And of course, it takes two to tango. Temptation resisted is not sin. Though even the inner thoughts and desires that want to sin, those are sin. But after Satan's, did God really Did God actually say? Eve says this, verses 2 and 3. We're backing up just a bit. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Eve was a C-plus student in the first sword fighter's ministry. Headed for that myself this month, unfortunately. She adds two phrases to what God said. Most importantly, God never said, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. In her defense, Eve never heard God's original command. She was created after he spoke it. Adam should have repeated it and instructed his wife about its importance. But in response to Eve's overcorrection, Satan denies that she will die. And then he uses more exaggerations to to tempt her. And then you might say, in the words of James 1, Eve's desire gives birth to sin. She is tempted by what 1 John 2.16 calls the desires or lusts of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life or possessions. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Kidner says, So simple the act, so hard its undoing. God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. As we focus on Eve, I am not trying to be overly negative toward the woman. I'm not trying to give Adam a pass either. Both of them are to blame. Notice her her husband doesn't say anything. And look at verse 6b, the, the end of it. She gave some to her husband who was with her. He's with her. Many commentators think Adam is there the whole time. It's a failure by both sexes. In fact, when the serpent speaks to Eve, when he says you, he uses a plural you. As the ESV footnotes will say in some of your Bibles. Adam has abdicated his role as the head of the family. Failed to inform his wife about 
God's word, his command about the tree. He stands by while a talking serpent tempts his wife to sin. Later, he will blame shift at first before finally offering a weak confession. Before you know it, Adam and Eve can see their nakedness and their shame. They hide their nakedness behind clothes. They hide themselves behind the trees. They've gone from naked and unashamed in Genesis 2.25 to naked and ashamed in just a few short verses. Why? Because of Satan's temptations, because of Eve's carelessness with God's word, because of Adam's abdication, passivity in about six different ways because they directly violate the one prohibition, the one covenant stipulation that God had given them. That tree, don't eat. Don't eat from that tree. Eat of it and you will surely die. God could have struck them down right then. Instead, they merely die spiritually. And so did we. From this point on, mankind inherits the now-fallen nature of our original ancestors. We sinned in him and fell with him in Adam's first transgression, as the catechism says. Adam was a covenant mediator, a covenant uh, um, a leader, a federal or representative head, and he blew it for all of us. That may not seem fair. Fair enough. Good point, I say. But we have all broken the everlasting covenant on our own, as Isaiah 24, 5 says. And is it also not fair for one man, one representative, to redeem us from that fallen state? Is that not fair as well? Would you object if someone did that? If a second Adam came and fixed the mess that the first Adam created, caused why is man cursed? Well, it's complicated, and it's not. Adam blew it, so did we. And because we're cursed, we can't fix it, can't shake it. Naked and ashamed, hiding from the ugly truth, the painful truth of it all. But if, if you can handle the truth, the truth may just set you free. That leads to our second point this morning. What does the curse mean? What does the curse mean? Verses 8 through 24. In other words, how does the curse affect us, especially mankind? <clears throat> Excuse me. The first way is one we've mentioned already. Shame manifested in their hiding. Notice this. Verse 7. They know they're naked, so they make clothes. Verse 8. They hear God who told them not to eat that fruit, so they hide. Verse 9, God asks Adam where he is. God knows the answer, by the way, but he's inviting Adam to repent. Verse 11 is more of the same. First, Adam evades, and then he, he kind of gets nasty, defensive. Verse 12, the man said, The woman whom you gave me, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. The birth of blame-shifting. John Courage says, sin creates in us a, quote, basic unwillingness to admit guilt, to accept responsibility for our actions. You don't have to teach kids how to do what Adam does here, right? He's ultimately blaming God. 
because he can't bear the guilt of his sin. He feels, again, the shame. Brene Brown is an academic who's well known for her research on shame. One of her definitions of shame is this, an intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Our catechism would call it a state of sin and misery. Misery, knowing that we are unworthy, flawed. This shorthand might come from Brown as well. Guilt is I feel bad. Shame is I am bad. I'm not sure how much she talks about the Bible's solution for all of this. I'm not an expert on her work, but I think she has correctly diagnosed at least part of the problem. Shame, inability to fix our flaws, and we know it, intense feelings of inadequacy. That is one large effect of the curse, and all of us are dealing with it all the time, each in different ways, some of which exacerbate the shame of others around us. There's also an effect this has on the serpent. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, in dust you shall eat all the days of your life. The ancient rabbis reportedly said, because he was cunning above all, he is cursed above all. Next, God talks about the significance of the curse for Eve. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Pain could also mean grief in addition to the physical pain. Grief, the anxieties of motherhood, which can become overwhelming without the Spirit's help. And as for the last part, I believe God is saying here, one of woman's natural sinful struggles from now on will be to rule over her husband, to upset, to reverse the God-ordained order in the family. Notice man will remain that God-ordained head of the family. Woman will be tempted to resist that as she already did in this chapter. Of course, some would say that male headship, which yes, can lead to ungodly chauvinism. Male headship is actually a result of the fall, some would say. Before the fall, male headship wasn't a thing. It's a bug, not a feature. But John Currid points out four reasons to believe male headship is God's design. Number one, man was created first, was given a law to teach his family. Two, woman was created as a helper for man. That is not a demeaning term, not meant to be one. God is called man's helper in the Old Testament. Women are equal in status and value, but they have a different God-ordained function. And then three, when the woman is brought to man, back in Genesis 2.23, Adam names her woman, implying some authority. And fourth, did you notice how Satan intentionally upsets this order by speaking to the woman. So there is a God-ordained role for men and women before and after the fall. But the fall distorts both masculinity and femininity. The world would have you believe that all masculinity is toxic. You've heard that. 
phrase. The truth is that good, God-ordained masculinity has been cursed. And the reason for any toxicity within masculinity is that because we are cursed, fallen, flawed, paradise has been lost. We are not what we are meant to be. There's a line in the movie Jerry Maguire, I am not saying that it is a model of romance, manhood, womanhood in every respect. But there's a line when Renee Zellweger realizes that she is smitten with Tom Cruise. She says to her older sister in part, I love him for the man he wants to be, and I love him for the man he almost is. All of us men are at best almost what God wants us to be. To the women around us, I think it's appropriate to say we are sorry that we are not the men that God called us to be. Not all the way, not close some days. But if you can find it in your heart to love and respect us for the men we almost are, the men we strive to be, want to be, it would mean the world to some of us. Maybe we could walk through fire and then some for you if someone believed in us. And yes, of course, the love and respect that a woman has for her husband is different than the fraternal affection she has for her brothers in Christ. Yes, of course. But if you'll take a chance on us, then we'll try to be the men God wants us to be. You can help us if you'll try to follow and encourage the men we almost are. Men, who do you want to be? Who should you want to be? This line from a PCA pastor is what I share in premarital counseling with prospective husbands in front of their wives-to-be. A true leader is not anxious to assert that he is in charge. More often than not, his leadership is unobtrusive and gentle. A lot more we could say there, but let's move on. God has a word for Adam in this passage as well, verses 17 through 19. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. <clears throat> Man will have painful toil. Work will not be easy. The sin involved a forbidden fruit, and now all fruit will be harder to acquire. In fact, this will lead to man's expulsion, banishment from the garden, from paradise. You see that in verses 23 and 24. Because it would be cruel and unusual punishment to let man eat of the tree of life and experience eternal life in a fallen state. Side note, if anyone's wondering, where did the garden go? I don't ultimately know. But for the sake of simplicity, I think God moved it to a new location. The blessed and final promised land, which he will bring with him when he returns. In other words, don't go off on an... Indiana Jones' mission looking for Eden or the Holy Grail. You won't find it. But back to work. <clears throat> work after the fall is hard. 
But work itself is not the curse. Work itself is not cursed. Not from the beginning. God gave Adam work, Genesis 2.16, before the fall. The fall just complicates it. Derek Kidner says, man in his own disorder would never now subdue the earth. That should temper our expectations for the lasting change we can accomplish on this side of heaven. But work is, is still a glorious thing, a thing that can bring glory to God when it is done well, when it is done for His honor and His praise, when we love our neighbors as we do it, when we work for more than just a paycheck. But in sum, the fall affects our relationship with ourselves. We now experience shame, our relationship with our Creator, because the shame drives us away from Him, our relationship with our spouse, upsetting God's ordained order, our relationships with all of our neighbors, and even our relationship with our work. The curse means, among other things, futility, frustration, even fratricide. That is a fancy word for brother murder, which you see in the very next chapter. The curse affects all of life so that even creation itself groans for redemption, cries out for a savior, to someone to reverse the curse. And isn't God kind to announce that savior even as he is announcing the curse itself. That leads to our third and final point this morning. How will the curse be reversed? You see it in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, God says to the serpent. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Again, he's speaking to the serpent. He pronounces enmity. Enemies, enmity between the serpent and Eve. Eve is not sending Satan Christmas cards. He ruined her life. Even if Eve and Adam are also to blame, he pronounces as well enmity between the serpent's seed and Eve's seed. Keep in mind, Satan has no physical children, no physical seed. He's a fallen angel. Angels can't have kids, Luke 20 says. This is talking about the spiritual descendants of Eve, the spiritual seed descendants of Satan. Currid says, one can be a child of Satan by will, heart, and intent, a child of the father of lies. And this idea of seed, descendant theology, traces all throughout Scripture, even to Revelation 12. And finally, God pronounces the end of enmity. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. A bruise to the heel is not fatal, but a blow to the head might be, often is, will be in this case. Notice the last phrase, he shall bruise your head. He, a singular male seed descendant of Eve's will do this. In Galatians 3, 16, confirms this offspring is Christ himself. You see, the need for Christ is apparent very quickly as the curse of Genesis 3 unfolds. We need a Savior. And the prophecy of Christ is also there from the earliest 
pages of the Bible. God planned this from before the foundation of the world, and God did not waste much time or ink before he revealed part of this plan to us. This is how the curse is reversed, will be reversed. This is how the enmity that envelops the whole world is extinguished with peace, shalom, wholeness. Christ will come. He will crush the head of the serpent by having his heel bruised. Because Christ will come and suffer on a cross, experience all the pains of hell on the cross, continue under the power of death for three days. But it will not hold. Satan, who is clever and devious, but not omniscient, will think he is one. But in Christ's death, death itself will be defeated. Satan will be defeated. 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You can read about that verse and many others in a short book that John Piper wrote called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. And yes, Jesus came at Christmas so that he could die at Easter or Good Friday. I've said for years, every Christmas sermon must also be an Easter sermon in some ways. But you might be saying, wait a minute, Easter's already happened. If Jesus already died and rose again, then why is life still so horrible and broken? Great question. For years, Christians have talked about the already and the not yet. Christ came to earth the first time, his first advent, so that he might deal the decisive blow to Satan and death. But he went back to heaven promising to return his second advent when he will finally, fully consummate his kingdom, when he will finally make all things right. In the meantime, he is making all things new, even now, slowly and surely. And he is being patient with us so that we will hear his message. We will take hold of his salvation. He comes to make his blessings flow, as we said, far as the curse is found. But it'll take a little while. In the meantime, don't forget your place in this world. Don't forget that life is fallen. Don't forget as well that life is being redeemed. He is making all things new. Don't forget that Jesus made a daring invasion into enemy territory to free us from the curse of sin. That's how we need to see the advent. I've heard it like this. The first advent was like D-Day. The second advent will be like V-E-Day. D-Day. The famous Normandy invasion that turned the tide of World War II that beat back the Nazi forces. VE Day. Victory in Europe Day. Of course, VE Day. Yeah, too many, too many uh, vowels there. VE Day doesn't happen without D Day. Our D Day has happened, but we still await Victory Day when Jesus will come for his people. And we will rejoice with him. And don't forget this either. Because Christ has come already. Come, died, risen again. Because of that, we are free from sin's penalty now. 
We are covered in righteousness divine, as one hymn says. Our shame and sin and so much more, it is covered with something much better than an animal skin. Kidner says of those animal skins, they are forerunners of many measures of welfare, both moral and physical, which man's sin makes necessary, which God will provide for us, has provided for us. We are free from sin's penalty now, if we've trusted in Christ. We are freed partially from sin's power now. We are enabled more and more to, to, uh, to die unto sin and live more and more unto righteousness. We are also freed eventually from sin's presence altogether. That day has not come yet. Victory day has not come yet. But the victory is guaranteed. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Because we have received that gift. The greatest gift, yes, like most cliches, it's true. And that's why it's re repeated so often. Paradise was lost, but it will be regained. We're assured of it. We are headed for redemption. We are headed back to paradise. As you may have heard before, Genesis, the book of beginnings, the first book of the Bible. It begins with creation, marriage, then a serpent. But the Bible ends in Revelation 19 through 22 with the death of the serpent, a final marriage feast. And then new creation, a new paradise with a tree of life and all the other good stuff. Revelation 22 verses 1 and 2 say, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This is why Jesus came at Christmas, to bring us back to paradise, to bring us back to God, our creator. Let us pray. God, you are good and what you do is good. Would you help us to taste and see that goodness this morning? Would you help us to be reassured beyond any doubt that you are good and that your promises to us will never fail. God, be with us as we still live in a fallen world, as we see the beginning of your redemption, but we do not see it all the way in full. Father, help us to see the goodness of our God. Help us to see the goodness that he is working in and around us, even now. We pray all this in Jesus' great name. Amen.